things get a little bit grim. But this is especially heinous. Did you tell the police that she was ordered, May? Nope. Witchy ghost stuff. Ah! Don't make me scared. A spooky girl amateur hour. Water by me or else I will die. The end. Same. Good story. Drink. Drink water. Drink your water. Drink your water. I found a TikTok the other day and I sent it to Sarah and Jamie because we are always kind of in uh, water challenges with each other. Yeah. Sarah and I especially will be like, water challenge today. Um, And I only always challenge her when I wake up at like 5 a.m. and I've already had two (laughs) bottles of water. And then she's behind me every day. You're a cheater. Yeah. Every time. (laughs) I love that. But I sent them this TikTok that was like... um, a girl messaging another girl and the message was like, hey, I'm doing a TikTok video. I need you to chug a glass of water for me as fast as you can and film it and send it to me for my TikTok. And she does she does it and sends it to her. And she's like, what did you need that for? And she's like, nothing. I just wanted to make sure you were a hydrated bitch. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Sarah was like, why don't you send me texts like this? I love the emotional manipulation. I do, too. I'm here for it. Yeah, I do, too. I love it. It's a very Libra Scorpio, like, dynamic. Mm-hmm. I will give you bangs. I will give you bangs. <laughs> Ain't never been two pretty best friends. One of them bitches always oh, gotta dead. be dead. Oh, I will say, despite our life, everything else, like the water, I'm doing really good on my water. I'm loving this diet. Yeah, that I'm on. It is not a lifestyle diet, although I might try to like make it out to be. Okay. The first day was really fucking hard. Yeah. Because I I really couldn't eat, like, half the stuff I was supposed to. Yeah. They want me to eat so freaking frequently. And somebody who just has, like, one meal at a seven. Day. Yeah. It was hard. But I'm adjusting. Yesterday was a lot easier because it was just fresh fruit and a turkey sandwich for breakfast. But I look weirded out that the turkey sandwich was your first thing. Yeah, I know. That sounds like a very lunch meal to me. So most of the days you can flip around and eat them in like whatever order. But that is the only hard day that you start with a turkey sandwich and then you can only eat fresh fruit for the rest of the day. And I was actually like, it was 830 and I was like, I'm hungry. Nice. Like it has been such a long time since my body actually like felt. Your, like, hunger cues happen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was cool. That's awesome. But all the rest of the meals are, like, depression food. Like, depression meals. Oh. Which I love. So, like, my lunch was sausage links and walnuts. And I'm like, I can get on board. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's just, like, take a handful of whatever you've got in your fridge, but you can only have a handful of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Nice. At 3.30, I have to eat turkey bacon strips. And I'm like, sold. Great. Great. I had cottage cheese for breakfast. Oh, God. Oh, I love it. It's so good. Yuck. I tried a juice cleanse once. Oh, how'd it go? Not great. Okay. And I was so dedicated to this. I bought a juicer. I (laughs) decided to make all my juices, like, for the week. Uh, Oh. In, like, one day. Okay. Or I made, like, three days of juices or something like that. Okay. And I couldn't even get through the first glass. It was disgusting. Really? So disgusting. One of them called for onion, like a juiced onion. I would love that. And I swear to you, one of my pink water bottles still has the remnants of an onion type smell (laughs) in it. And it's disgusting. It will never heal. No, it won't. I love that. I would love that. As somebody who can eat onions like apples. Oh, oh God. Ew. I didn't even think about that. Do you know what I want to try? I want to go to Trader Joe's because uh-huh. we just got one. Yeah. And they have these like cayenne ginger uh-huh. health shots. Okay. And people like try them and they like can't get them down. But I'm like, I think I would love that a as a glutton for punishment. I used to do apple cider vinegar shots. Ooh, I used to do those when I was like 18 or 19. Oh, yeah. Same. When and I, I thought like, that it would. I'm so fat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fuck my life. I wish I could be as fat as I was in high school. Same. Mm-hmm. Big same. <laughs> well, we're 30 and that's not the way our bodies are made that's anymore. That's not how it works now. That's not. So, it's true crime day. <gasps> Yay! I am nervous. Why? About my story. It's a big one. Okay. It's a big one. And it's one that I it, I got really invested in this story and because it's relatively recent, it started in 2012 or 2002, I think. Okay. And it didn't resolve until 2013. Yikes. And 
it's I just followed it and especially when everything kind of came out in the media and got really invested in everybody involved and and I didn't realize until I started doing the research like how many timelines there are. So I'm okay. gonna do my heck and best. Okay. To get these timelines straight for you, but if you have questions, please ask. Okay. Because <laughs> I <laughs> we love a convoluted true crime. Yeah, it's oof. Okay. So getting taken by a stranger and held against your will is one nightmare that most women all fear. We wonder how would we handle ourselves? How would we get out? Unfortunately, three women in Cleveland, Ohio, had to ask themselves these questions over and over again during their 11-year imprisonment. I just got full-body chills. Oh, my God. Okay. I Okay. Ugh. I can't wait. I remember when this happened. Yeah. But, like, just that I remember that it happened. Yeah. Do you know anything about it? Like, not a lot? I only know the skit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is not funny. Well, well, but Dave Chappelle is a funny guy. Sure, 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 yeah. So, but that's all I know about it. Okay, all right, wow. So we're going to be in for a, a ride. Okay. So I just want to give a trigger warning for probably the next 45 minutes. If rape, if torture, sex abuse is not something you can stomach, please fast forward to Jenny's story. Uh, this no, is... don't fast forward to my story. Oh, okay. Maybe, Maybe go just... back and listen to another episode. <laughs> okay, all right. So this one's going to be a little heavy. Yeah. Great. Okay. Michelle Knight was 21 years old and down on her luck in 2002. In fact, her entire childhood was pretty awful. Well, she was 20? She was 21. 21. Okay. Yep, 21 in 2002. Sweet baby. Okay. Yes. Her family struggled to make ends meet. Often they didn't have anything extra. Uh, she One of her earliest memories is waking up in her car with her parents and her br- brother because they didn't have anywhere to live. Oh. Uh, but when she was a teenager, they did have a home, but they didn't have a couch or a stove. It was bare minimum. It was literally the roof was over bare. their head was the thing that they could afford. Okay. Uh, to make a hot meal, Michelle had to cook over a space heater when she was just a little girl, and she was the one that took care of her oh. siblings. She said it would take four hours to cook a hot dog. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, Michelle was the mother figure to her younger siblings and actually helped her mother deliver her youngest brother in the house. And the news came and interviewed her, which when this whole story gets like wound up, everybody at the news station was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, we have footage of this little girl. She was probably 12 Uh. and she had to help her mother deliver a baby. Uh, She had aspirations uh, as a teenager, but standing only four feet, seven inches tall, she was often bullied in school. Oh, honey. She was little. Okay. Uh, She told her mother that she had been assaulted on school grounds, but from everything I could tell, nothing was done about the allegation. That sounds about right. Uh, She had been sexually abused by a male family member growing up and eventually ran away from home to escape the abuse. She said she never felt, she felt safer on the streets than she did in her own home. She lived under an overpass in Cleveland and she found a garage bin. She found a garbage bin Uh and a blanket and that's where she slept. But because she was so little, she could crawl all the way in the the bin and close the lid on its side and have shelter. Yeah. Uh, When she was on the streets, she was recruited by a local gang to be a drug runner. And she was paid $300 a week to do this. Okay. While it's easy to see that this would be a horrible time in her life, Michelle would say that this was actually one of the better experiences she had. The gang took her in and made sure she had a warm place to sleep and that she was well fed. And this would be the first time she had money of her own. Eventually, the gang member she was staying with was arrested and her life was back to the streets. Yeah. At some point, she was spotted by someone who knew her parents, and they found her and dragged her back home where the abuse continued. Oh, my God. Yeah. She would have been 14, 15 at this point. Oh, sweet baby. At age 18, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son named Joey. And this was from a high school boyfriend-ish type person. Okay. Um, But just wanted to be clear that that was not, like, a result of Of abuse. Got it. Um, Michelle goes out to find a job one day so she can support her and her son and left Joey at home with her mother and her mother's boyfriend. From all accounts, Michelle having Joey was the turning point. Like, her life was now all about this child Mm -hmm. instead of trying to figure out how to survive. survive. So 
She was that much more dedicated to finding a job. She was that much more dedicated to getting out of the house. But when she left uh, Joey with her mother and her mom's boyfriend, um, the boyfriend got drunk and grabbed Joey by the leg and fractured his knee. Michelle took the boy to the hospital, but social services got involved and put Joey in foster care. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, On August 23rd, 2002, Michelle was trying to get to a hearing in the family court to try to win her son back and explain everything. And she was in a hurry, but she got lost in downtown Cleveland Uh. to get to this family hearing. So she stopped at a store to ask for directions, and she was approached by a man she recognized. This man was the father of one of the girls she knew in high school, and he said he would take Michelle to the hearing, and she gladly agreed. This was her friend's dad. Somebody she knew, yeah. Uh, Once she was in the car, he said he wanted to swing by the house and pick up his daughter, and he also had a sign in the bottom of his car that said, like, free puppies or something. Oh, God. And she was like, oh, my God, puppies. And he said, yeah, I'll show them to you when we get to the house, and you can pick out one for your son when you get him back. Oh, And the decision to get into his car would be the one she regretted forever. Fast forward to 2003. Amanda Berry is just shy of her 17th birthday in April of 2003. Amanda worked at a local fast food restaurant and was a good student. She described herself as a homebody and was into fashion. She was walking home from her shift at the restaurant when a vehicle started following her. A man she recognized as the father of one of her school friends asks her if she needs a ride, and she says yes. Just as small talk, Amanda asks about his daughter, and he asks if she'd like to stop by the house to see her. Amanda says yes, that would be great. Once they're in the house, Amanda realizes that she is in immediate danger. Oh, God. Fast forward another year to 2004. Gina De Jesus is 14 years old. She is walking home from her middle school and stopped at a payphone around 3 p.m. She and her friend, Arlene Castro, stopped by a payphone to ask Arlene's mother if they could have a sleepover at Gina's house. She said no, and the two girls parted ways. Gina walked a couple of blocks before she was approached by Arlene's father, who said, uh, do you know where Arlene is? She said that they had just been together and that Arlene was on her way home. Ariel Castro told Gina that he would drive her home, and she agreed. Arlene was the last person to see Gina. So let me tell you a little bit about Ariel Castro. Okay. He was born in Puerto Rico, and he and his family moved to the States when he was a child. Castro met his girlfriend, Gramilda Figuera. In 1980, and he didn't really have strong feelings toward her, but she was absolutely enamored with him. Okay. In 1992, they moved in together and shortly after had their first child, Ariel Castro Jr., and eventually they would have four children together, uh, Ariel Jr., Angie, Emily, and Arlene. After the birth of their son, things started changing, and he became incredibly controlling, telling Grimilda that she, what she could and could not wear, who she could see, what she could watch on TV. Mm. Uh, He also began to beat her violently. He broke her nose, ribs, arms, caused a blood clot in her brain that would eventually turn into an inoperable tumor. He threw her down a set of stairs and cracked her skull. In 1993, he was arrested for domestic violence, but was not indicted by the grand jury. Grimilda moved out in 1996 and was able to secure custody of her four children. And Grimilda issued a restraining order against Castro, but it was dismissed a few months later. Mm. Despite his history of violence, he was able to get a job as a school bus driver. What? And that is what he was doing in the early 2000s. The house he lived in at 2207 Seymour Avenue was a two-story, 1,400-square-foot, four-bedroom, one-bathroom house with a 760-square-foot unfinished basement. Although he was violent and horrible behind closed doors, people knew him around the community as a fun, nice guy who played music and helped his neighbors. No one suspected him of the atrocities he was committing. As each of the young women was taken, they all experienced the same horrible things in their first few days of their capture. Ariel Castro would take the newly captured girl down to the basement and chain her to a pole. He would bind her hands and legs together, put a sock in her mouth, and put a motorcycle helmet over her head. He would rape them multiple times over the coming days while he kept them in the basement. He would keep a radio turned up all the way so that if anybody heard anything, it would be a radio. Yeah. Uh, by the time Gina joined Michelle and Amanda, Michelle had been a captive of Castro's for two years and four months, while Amanda had been ca- held captive for one year. Oh. Michelle first became aware that there was another girl in the house when she realized he would not let her watch the news footage about Amanda. 
He allowed them to meet once after a few weeks, but after that, it would be months again before they would be allowed to interact again. And eventually, all three women would be taken upstairs into bedrooms where he would chain them to radiators. Oh, my God. Yeah. Gina and Amanda's family searched frantically for their daughters, but no one suspected Castro. He did that thing that narcissists do where they, like, want to involve themselves in the investigation. investigation. Uh, so he went to the vigils and asked for flyers and said, I'll help pass these out. Oh, my God. Gross. Classic like, narcissist. Oh, he's the freaking worst. Uh, Amanda was considered a runaway for the first week until Castro actually called Amanda's mom two weeks after he took her to say that she was with him and they were happily married. What? Amanda's four. No, Amanda would have been 17. 17. But yeah, that was the only time the police actually believed her mom that she was taken. Yeah. She wasn't just a runaway. Uh, So this was actually at the very beginning of phone tracking. Okay. Because it would have been in 2003, 2004. Mm -hmm. Uh, And police were able to narrow it down to an area of about a 40 block radius, but never found anything. That is not super narrow. No, it's not. They showed a map of it. And it's, it's a lot of Cleveland. I, yeah. It's a lot of Cleveland (laughs) to be covering. Not very narrow. No. Uh, They kept hoping that he would use Amanda's phone again, but he never did. Michelle did not have anyone looking for her. Her mother reported her missing, but with her history of running away, they assumed that that is exactly what happened. 15 months after she was last seen, she was removed from the missing persons list. What? Yeah. And ironically, she was removed from the list a week before uh, Amanda and Gina's America's Most Wanted episode was aired. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So they realized that Amanda and Gina's disappearances were tied because Mm -hmm. they happened at almost the same corner. Got it. Um, But nobody knew about Michelle. Nobody suspected anything. Yeah. They just thought she was on the streets. Yeah. You know, somebody can still be on the streets and missing at the same time. Yeah. Uh huh. You yeah. Just because you're on the streets doesn't mean that you don't count anymore. You because you, you, you do. You still matter. You're still a person. Uh huh. Yeah. It's wild. And it's the just, biases that we hold. Oh yeah. Well, it didn't even cross my mind when we were getting the st- stimulus checks. How many people wouldn't get theirs because they're on the streets? They don't have a bank account. Mm-hmm. Don't have a mailbox. Mail don't check. have a mailbox. But I was completely. It stopped me dead in my tracks Mm -hmm. when I heard that for the first time. It's devastating. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So, like I said, the police did connect Gina and Amanda's disappearances and released a sketch of the subject in 2004. There was a small black and white television that the girls were allowed to watch once they were upstairs in the bedrooms. And they watched Amanda and Gina's families desperately ask for uh, for their return on the news. And this gave them hope. Amanda said, as long as they were willing to fight for me, I would fight to get that back to them. Also in 2004, and this made me sick to my stomach, Sylvia Brown, a self-proclaimed psychic, was a guest on the Montel Williams show. Freaking Sylvia Brown. Fuck <laughs> Sylvia Brown. Do you know her? Yes. I, oh, you hate her? I hate her, and you, you'll know why. Okay. So she and Amanda's mother was on the show, bawling hysterically wanting any lead to find her daughter. Yeah. And Sylvia Brown looked her in the eye and said, your daughter's dead. Oh! She's in water. She drowned. And Luanda, Amanda's mom, stopped looking for her because she was told she was dead. Fuck Sylvia Brown. Okay, got it. Fuck Sylvia Brown. Oh, man, that makes my heart so sad. Yeah. As, as people who have lost people to have... And who believe in psychics and believe in that kind of thing. If I got a sign like that, I'd believe it too. Yeah, I would also, I would as well. Oh, man, that makes me want to fight. Broad. <laughs> I'm so mad. <laughs> your, your hands are clenched into so tight fists. mad. <laughs> makes me so irritated. Okay. <laughs> like you're fighting for him like this. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to punch you. That's what I look like. I Threatening. <laughs> I, yeah, that, that's me. Uh, okay. Uh, the announcement devastated her mother and caused uh, Luana to take down the missing flyers, and she gave away Amanda's belongings. The women did have a small, um, they, the women held at Castro's did have that small television, and they were allowed to watch this broadcast, and they watched Sylvia tell Amanda's mom oh that she was God. dead. During their captivity, Michelle was often treated the worst. She was the oldest. 
the most sassy, and had nothing to lose. Sure. Uh, he would leave her without food for three to four days at a time. Ariel most often taunted Michelle that she was not loved like Amanda and Gina because her family was Didn't never work. on the news and they, there seemed to be no one looking for her. Yeah. Castro forced the women to use buckets instead of toilets and they were emptied infrequently at best. Gross. Everything had a price. He would say, you need a shower, but the shower had to be taken with him. So anything he gave, he expected something, something in return. Uh, they were only allowed to shower once a week. And the abuse and terror was consistent, con- constant. Sexual abuse, emotional abuse, threats to kill were an everyday occurrence. Whatever you're thinking is happening, it's probably much worse. Yeah. Amanda seemed to be the favorite of Castro's, and he referred to her as his wife. She got more food, and she was given a diary and things to write with. If she disagreed with Castro, she wouldn't get the beating for it. Michelle would. Oh. She also got a color TV in her bedroom. In the diary, she would write a number in each of the corners uh, to indicate how many times she had been raped that day. So sometimes it was 1x, sometimes it was 3x, sometimes it was high as 5. Oh my god. Uh, But that would be important for later. Okay. So, Michelle was impregnated five times, and each time Castro beat her, starved her, injured her, and forced her to miscarry. God. What a piece of shit. Absolutely. There's no redeeming qualities. No. Zero. No. Which I know, like, sounds absurd because he stole three women off the street. Like, obviously, there's nothing good here, but, like, fuck. But he was just evil to to be be evil. evil. Like, we don't have anything to point to. That says, like... He didn't have, like, the triad, did he? Mm-mm. At least not that we've been able to find. Okay. Um, there was, like, he said that he was abused as a child, but there was nothing to corroborate that. Okay. Uh, and his brothers, like, have denied that. Yeah. Not that it justifies... Not that it justifies it. But at least it provides a little bit of explanation. Something. Instead of somebody just kidnapping a raping woman to do it. Because they were bored, because it's a Tuesday. Yeah. Ugh, Jesus. Uh, do do do, Michelle. Okay, Michelle and Gina were eventually moved into the same room together and were chained together. When one of the women was being raped, the other would hold her hand and try to soothe her while that was happening. On Christmas Day in 2006, Michelle was called into another bedroom and was told that Amanda was having a baby and Michelle would need to help. Amanda was in a small inflatable swimming pool, and Castro threatened to kill Michelle if the baby didn't survive. At one point, the baby stopped breathing, but Michelle was able to resuscitate her. The birth of Jocelyn was a turning point for all three women. It was, uh, DeJesus said, it was fun because I can get away from the situation. When I was playing with Jocelyn, Jocelyn made me forget everything. Castro loved Jocelyn. Truly. Genuinely loved her. He treated her well and took her out of the house. She met his grandmother and knew her as grandma. Jocelyn provided a welcome distraction. Mm -hmm. Uh, They loved to take care of her and play with her. And Amanda would eventually teach Jocelyn how to read and write. Uh, Castro removed Amanda's change because Amanda would need to be able to move to take care of Jocelyn. Sure. And now Castro viewed this setup as some weird fucked up family bonding. So when Jocelyn got older, he realized that he would have that she could completely blow his secret out of the water. Yeah. So he never let her know Michelle or Gina's names. He called them by nicknames that he taught her. Okay. And he also realized that if she told someone that he had three women chained up in his house, that it would be um, bad. So he unchained Michelle and Gina at that point. Oh. Um. So uh, they were able to like kind of pseudo friend like freely move around the house they yeah. still were very afraid sure to move around well they've had years of conditioning yeah absolutely but they were at this point at least not chained to radiators yeah a small small sil- win small silver lining here <laughs> god um so they would do chores around the house, but overall they were allowed to walk around, but that didn't mean that they weren't punished for the smallest infraction. At one point, Castro had them play Russian roulette, just as an example of his absolute Twisted. torture, uh, and he pointed the gun at Gina first and pulled it, pulled the trigger, the, nothing happened, and he handed it to her, and 
said, if you love me, you won't shoot me. And she shot, she shot it. Yeah. And nothing happened. But that was, that kept coming up in a lot of the interviews that that was a turning point because he realized, like, they will never step up against him. Yeah. Uh, so remember how I said that Castro was a bus driver? Mm-hmm. At some point in the mid-2000s, he refused to let a boy off the bus and instead took him around the city, made him wait hours in the bus while uh, Castro went out for breakfast. Eventually, he let him go, but the boy was emotionally scarred, obviously. And the police showed up at his house to interview him, but he didn't answer, and the police just left. Left. Just like... Didn't follow up? Weird. Huh. Yeah. Did he lose his job? Yes. Okay, Yes, he did. Good. So, yeah, little did the police know they had uh, three women locked and chained in the house. Wow. At that point. Finally, one seemingly random day in May of 2013, Jocelyn, who was six. Oh, my God. Goes downstairs and comes back up and says, I don't find daddy. Daddy nowhere around. At first, Amanda thought that this could be one of Castro's mind games Mm -hmm. because he sometimes would pretend to leave. And then when the women would like tiptoe around to check, he would be standing on the other side of the door with a gun pointed at them. Yeah. Uh, They waited and waited and didn't hear anything. So Amanda decided to go downstairs and scope things out. She realized that Castro's car was gone and she thought, this is it. This is our chance. She walked to the front door and saw that somehow miraculously, he had forgotten to lock the heavy wooden door. Oh, my God. He locked the metal storm door, but the main door was unlocked. She was very thin after years of being fed french fries once a week. Right. And was able to squeeze her arm through the bars of the storm door and wave her hand around. She started yelling to get attention from anybody. Oh, no. Finally, a neighbor named Charles Ramsey showed up, and he tried to pull on the door, but it was padlocked shut. He kicked the top of it, and Amanda, uh, and told Amanda to kick the bottom of the door, and they could bend it enough for her to squeeze through. She was able to get about halfway through, but she retreated back inside and emerged again with six-year-old Jocelyn. Gina was very scared and convinced Michelle that Castro had come home and killed Amanda, so they were hiding in a bedroom closet. Oh, my God. Amanda and Jocelyn ran to the neighbor's house to call the police, and Amanda said, Help me, please. I'm Amanda Berry. I've been kidnapped. I've been missing for 10 years, and I'm here. I'm free now. Oh, my God. Interesting side fact. (sighs) The 911 dispatcher was reprimanded for how he handled this call. Why? He told her to just talk to the police when they got there. No, my God. Yep. And when she asked if the police were on their way now, he said, we'll send one when we get a car open. And she said, no, I need help now. I need help before he gets back. Uh, The police did respond within two minutes, but he didn't handle the call with any kind of empathy, compassion, and he should have stayed on the phone with her until police arrived. He didn't? No. He tried to get off the phone. What a mother fluffer. Yeah. He's still taking 911 calls in the Cleveland area to yeah. this day. No, I hope he gets fired. Somebody write the mayor of Cleveland. Oh, they, that's why he got reprimanded. Because when the story broke in 2013, they released the 911 call. And the public was outraged that he handled it so poorly. Yeah. So he got written up for it. And that's it. I hate him. That's it. What's his name? Oh, I wrote, I don't think I wrote it down, but you can find it. I'll find it. I'll find it. I was just like, what? What? Bro. Are you kidding me? Ew. Do better. Yeah. Just do the bare minimum, if you would. Yeah. Stay on the phone with a girl who's been kidnapped for 10 fucking years. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, we'll get a car out there in a minute. Like, and it was a really shitty side of Cleveland. And I think he just saw that this phone call was coming from this really unsafe place. Uh, It was like, meh, just another day. God. Hate it so much. Yeah, Yeah, if you could just do the bare minimum. We'd appreciate it. If we're going to do a job, at least do it okay. Yep. Uh, So the police were stunned when they pulled up and actually saw that it was indeed Amanda. They asked if anyone else was in the house, and she said, yes, Gina de Jesus and Michelle Knight. They knew Gina, but no one knew who Michelle was. Mm. The women were immediately taken to the ER for treatment and to get their statements. Gina and Amanda were in relatively good shape, and they didn't need to spend time in the hospital. Gina was reunited with her family. Sadly, Amanda's mother, Luana, died while she was in captivity due to heart disease. Oh, my God. No. And she died thinking that her daughter was dead. Yeah. Oh. Wait. Oh, sorry. I'm trying to have an emotion. Okay. It passed. (laughs) 
Let it out. No. <laughs> if we let it out, we won't stop. If we let one out, we got to let them all out. <laughs> the floodgates will happen. Yeah. It's emotional fair housing. <laughs> got to be treated gotta equally. Treat all the same. <laughs> we do not discriminate. No. Okay. Um, okay. Da, 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 da. Michelle refused to take calls from her mother, who was trying to call the hospital. And Michelle was like, fuck, fuck. you so hard. <laughs> fuck that bee. Absolutely not. <laughs> I love her. Michelle spent a week in the hospital and had to go uh, facial reconstructive surgery. Oh, my God. She was no longer able to have children. And the police were immediately looking for Castro, and they pulled him over while he was driving home that day, the the day the women escaped on May 6th in 2013. Mm. The next day, he appeared in court and was held on an $8 million bond. Ooh. They put uh, $2 million for each charge of kidnapping. Good. The prosecutors used Amanda's diary. And this is how they were able to charge him with so many counts of rape. Because she documented it. She kept track. Smart, smart girl. Mm -hmm. He was charged with 977 criminal charges. Hell yeah, he was. It was so much that they had to do it in chunks. So they did from when Michelle was kidnapped to like 2007. Mm -hmm. And then they uh, like submitted those charges the next day. And then... Two weeks later, they were able to submit the rest of the charges from 2007 to 2013 because there was so much to get through. Yeah. Where they knew that they could just submit half of it and Mm -hmm. it would still be enough to hold him. Yeah. Until they could go through the rest of the shit. Jesus. So that would be 512 counts of kidnapping. What? 446 counts of rape. Seven of gross sexual imposition. Six of felonious assault three of child endangerment, two aggravated murder, and one possession of criminal tools. Mm. And he got two of aggravated murder for two of the babies that he killed Old. in utero. Um, and Jocelyn was also considered a kidnapped child. Good. So all of those, like, I kept seeing, like, four kidnapping charges, and, and I was like, like how? And then I was like, Jocelyn. Jocelyn. He did address the court, and um, blamed a litany of things for his actions and originally pleaded not guilty, but would let her change that plea to guilty. He blamed the girls for getting into his car. He blamed the FBI for not finding him in time. Oh, my God. He said that we were a family. No, narcissist. Ugh. Michelle was the only one who faced him in court, and she said, you took 11 years of my life away. I spent 11 years in hell, and now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that has happened, but you will face hell for eternity. I will live on, and you will die a little every day as you think of the 11 years of atrocities that you inflicted on us. I can forgive you, but I will never forget. I love Michelle. Yes. Erho Castro was sentenced to life in prison plus 1,000 years without the possibility of parole. (laughs) Is that the longest sentence ever? (laughs) Probably. A thousand? A thousand years. Life, oh, and a thousand years. (laughs) Life plus an extra. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Um, I hope there's ghost jail. I do, too. Like, I mm-hmm. I hope, you know, how we're, like, finding out that the government knows about aliens. Yeah. I think the government also knows about like, what happens after we die. And I hope that they have made a deal with the devil that is, like, <gasps> if we convict them in our court, you, you have to hold them in your court. Yep. Unless they didn't do it. Unless they didn't do it, then they free. Yeah. But they probably did. But they probably did. Ariel Castro <laughs> for sure did it. <sighs> Only a few months into his captivity, he was found in his cell, and his death was ruled a suicide. What a cheap, easy cheap. way out. Oh, that I remember hearing about that and being sad. I Here's how I feel about suicides in prison. I always think it's a murder that was covered up. Oh, yeah. I hope he was... Oh, I'm going to keep that thought inside. It was hateful. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. I... It, I definitely think that this was suicide because he could not handle being in captivity and treated a million times better than the women he kept in yeah. captivity. Couldn't handle it. Garbage. Today, Michelle has changed her name and gotten married. She travels around the world as a public speaker and recently launched her foundation, Lily's Rays of Hope, which supports women and girls who are victims of domestic violence, human trafficking, and child abuse. Mm. She has also released two books about her ordeal 2014 uh finding me a decade of darkness a life reclaimed a memoir of the cleveland kidnappings 
and in 2018, Life After Darkness, Finding Healing and Happiness After the Cleveland Kidnappings. Mm. Amanda Berry has joined the team at Fox 8 in Cleveland and hosts a segment about missing people. She says that watching the news segments of the people searching for her gave her hope, and she wants to provide that to families. Oh, wait. Another one. Oh, another emotion. Oh, my God, wait. (gasps) That is so nice. Righty, tighty, lefty, Lucy. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta reel it in. Okay, I'm good. Ooh, how lovely. <laughs> how sweet. How sweet. Love that for her. Great. Uh, Amanda and Gina wrote a book together called Hope, a Memoir of Survival in Cleveland. And Jocelyn is growing up, and Amanda says that she's doing very well, and she is very caring and kind. Oh. Gina lives a quiet life in the suburbs of Cleveland. She works with the Northeast Ohio Amber Alert Committee because mm. they wouldn't issue an Amber Alert with her for, for her because she was over 13. That's bloody. So they changed that law. Okay. After she was kidnapped, but they, she works for the Amber Alert Committee now. Uh, Newburg Heights Police Chief John Mahoy, who works with the group, told Fox 8 that De Jesus plans to help survivors and their family members. And my sources were People.com, ABC News, uh, Georgia Murray on YouTube. Mm. And that is the story of the Cleveland kidnappings in a very short a period bridge. of time. God. The Generation Y podcast did a two part episode on this Mm -hmm. and i believe each episode is like two hours long wow so if you want more of the nitty-gritty go listen to that podcast um they did a really really in-depth job i know that i think i listened to the first episode i think but most of the first episode is about michelle's life before she gets kidnapped and everything that she had to go through that poor girl yeah strong yeah oh and joey got put in foster care they just assumed she didn't want him so did you ever reunite with him no because he was put in foster care and she asked about him as soon as she was released but at that point he was like 15 was he adopted and he was adopted by the foster family that took him in when he was like two um and she didn't want to like disrupt disrupt that family he deserves to know that his mom didn't didn't leave. leave him yeah, mm-hmm. and she said that she hopes that they can reconnect when he is 18, yeah. and he knows where to find her. Yeah. So. Okay. That is that tragic story. That was a lot faster than I thought it was going to be. I thought that this was going to be like a, a Canadian bathtub killers episode, okay, where yeah. this was like an hour and a half long. <laughs> <sighs> that was a lot to get there. You did an excellent job of laying that out in a concise manner. Proud <laughs> of you. you. Good job. A round of applause for Taylor. <laughs> Thank you. Everybody clap in your cars. Ah, oh, the crowd goes wow. <laughs> all 100 of you all 100 of you well, across a crowd beach hey hey we love every single one of you oh lord i'm kim and i'm ashley and we host true crimes and weird times where we answer questions like did the government really kill danny Casalero? did you know that the movie scream was based on an actual serial killer how much do you know about skinwalkers Join us every Wednesday for your weekly dose of true crimes, the unexplained, and the just plain weird. Check out our website, truecrimesweirdtimes.com. Find us on Instagram and Facebook. And listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts. So come check us out. We'll be waiting. All right. Okay. You're going to tell me a super sad story, too. Well, here's the thing about a super sad story. I bring to you a a true crime buy one get one a bogo a a bloody bogo oh a, a a true crime ooh tada we have <laughs> a three for one a three for we have one. a three for one we got like Victoria's Secret panties five for twenty five over yes, here this is a semi annual clearance true crime sale for you. No okay. sign up required. Great. But follow us on the social meds. Yeah, that's your sign up. There, there you go. <laughs> so that's I'm your, gonna, put in your email at checkout. <laughs> I don't want to say that this has a happy ending because I don't know if like murder can ever be happy. Okay. But there's a sense of poetic justice. Okay. All right. Can we do a little? Uh, a little. As a Libra, my sign is the scales. I am for justice. Okay. It's a little, it's a little bit of a justice, but like make it gritty. It, make make okay. it unsavory. It's a Scorpio scale. It is my form of justice. <laughs> Great. It's a, does he get eaten by an alligator? 
Like, oh, better. It's better. Okay, great. Okay. I can't wait to Okay, so it. let me start by telling you the story of Joseph Drews. Uh, bad guy numero uno. Great, okay. Okay. Drews was born in Darren Smilage in Danvers in 1965, the son of a sheet metal worker. He finished the 10th grade before taking jobs as a mechanic and truck driver, according to court records. He changed his name in 1999 while in prison. His criminal career began soon as he left high school. He was charged with more than two dozen crimes, from drug possession to larceny to forgery. I don't know what larceny is. Uh, it is like theft. Oh, love that. Um, it was I know in... that because I played Larceny Jane in a high school play. <laughs> I love that name. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> I'll see if I can find a picture and post it on the Please, socials. God, do. Please do. And if you can't, post them one of you in the toga. <laughs> okay. What up, Mrs. Dan? Okay. Um, he was charged with more than two dozen crimes in 1988 in Gloucester um, that his life of crime took a violent turn. Okay, we've moved on from larceny. And forgery to stabby. Great. Bloody. Stabby. Stabany, Stabany, <laughs> Larceny, Snabany. <laughs> Drews's life. Um, Drews was hitchhiking with a friend in Gloucester when a man who drove a bus for the elderly picked them up. According to testimony during the trial, once they had arrived in a secluded section of Gloucester, the driver, fifty-one-year-old George Rollo, touched Drews in the groin, and Drews reacted violently. Beating him, tying him up, and throwing him in the trunk of Roller's car. I mean, important. After Rollo's beating, Drews and his friend picked up some beer, and Drews drove the car to a parking lot near the North Shore Music Theater in Beverly, where he strangled Rollo with a rope, the prosecutor said. Okay. So, very... <laughs> I mean, a reaction. Uh-huh. Yep. I'm not going to comment on what kind of reaction it was, but it was certainly a reaction. It was powerful. It was a powerful, emotional, knee-jerk moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll call it that. He was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. While he was in prison, a psychiatrist noted his rage in explicit detail, and I quote, Oh, man. Angry, frustrated, blaming, remorseless, intense, determined man, believes in Satan, unafraid, laughing as he declares his intent to kill himself. End quote. I was, I, I was like, I self-identifying until we got to the part where it was like, believes in Satan. <laughs> I mean, I believe in Satan. I believe in Satan too. I don't think that that's the only, like, that's not where I'm. That's not where we're trying we're to find. We're not trying to worship. No. <laughs> no, no. The Satan. We could, the Satan. The Satan, if you will. <laughs> In May 2001, letter to prison officials, Drews offered to provide information on two unsolved murders of two Massachusetts girls, Molly Bish and Holly Pyranin, in exchange for um, them to commute his life sentence. Molly and Holly. Molly and Holly. Sweet. Poor babies. Um, Worcester District Attorney John Conti said investigators looked into his offer but found that it was incredible. Obviously. Sure. In 99, Darren Ernest Smilage formally applied to change his name to Joseph Lee Drews, according to court records. In the space marked reason for change, uh, Smilage wrote, safety and enemy issues, very important to change identity. Drews's father, Dana Smilage Byfield, said that his son had a longstanding animosity towards Jews, African Americans, and gays. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. But well, let's... A specific note on homosexuals. Okay. Because he brutally murdered this man who made a move on him. Right. Okay. Um, so let's, let's move on. Sure. To bad guy number two. Okay. John Joseph Gogan. And he, this is, this is my trigger warning. The okay. section on this guy. But uh -huh. if you can hang in there, just hang in there. Okay. Born in Boston in 1935 to an Irish Catholic family, John Joseph Gogan attended local parochial schools intending to become a priest. He attended Cardo O'Connell Seminary. It's always, always the priest. It's always the priests. Oh, That's why it's... Yuck. Yuck. Um, an assessment in 1954 noted him as markedly immature. He graduated in 1962 and was then ordained. I like the word markedly. I like the word markedly, too. Mm -hmm. It's not used enough. Mm -mm. 
It's like poignant. Yeah. I think like poignant is also a word that needs mm-hmm. to be used more frequently. I always think of poinsettia. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, on February 13th, 1962, Gogan was assigned as an assistant pastor at Blessed Sacrament Parish in Saugus, Massachusetts. That December, he successfully talked a man out of committing suicide from jumping off the Mystic River Bridge. Wow. Great job. While he was assigned to Blessed Sacrament, Anthony Benzovich allegedly told church officials that the junior priest was observed bringing boys into his bedroom. Benzovich would later deny this allegation, but in 1998, Benzovich told reporters he was branded as a troublemaker for reporting Gogan and that the church officials hinted that he might be sent to Peru if he persisted. Peru? Peru. South America. Just gonna ship him off? It's a Catholic church. They can ship him off wherever the hell they want. I mean, we could just prosecute him instead, though. Yeah, but that would look not so great for the Catholic Church. Mm, so we're just going to put those Peruvian boys in danger. Yeah. Got yeah. it. In love 1995. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> love that for them. In 1995, Gogan admitted to having molested four boys during his tenure at Blessed Sacrament. Gogan was assigned to St. Bernard's Parish in Concord starting on September 22nd, 1966. He was transferred after seven months there. Church records offered no explanation for the reassignment. On April 20th, 1967, Gogan was assigned to St. Paul's Parish in Hingham. Around 1968, a man complained to church authorities that he had caught Gogan molesting his son. As a result, Gogan was sent to the Seton Institute in Baltimore, Maryland for treatment for his pedophilia. In the early 1970s, parishioner Joanne Mueller accused him of molesting her four young sons. Mueller has said that she informed Paul E. Maselli and he asked her to keep quiet. Maselli disputes her, disputes her account, and the church later re- reached a settlement with her. Oh, hmm. Mm. Pay him off. Here's hush money. Please be quiet. Gogan's next assignment was at St. Andrew's Parish in Boston's Jamaica Plain neighborhood starting on June 4th, 1974. And on February 9th, 1980, John E. Thomas told Bishop Thomas Vose that Gogan admitted to molesting seven boys. Wow. Daly called Gogan and told him to go home. Gogan admitted to the abuse, but said that he did not feel it a serious or pastoral problem. Uh, uh-huh. Just like NBD? He was just like, it's no big deal. He was just like, okay, fine. I'll go home. Uh, uh-huh. He was then placed on sick leave three days later and ordered by Cardinal Humberto Medeiros to undergo counseling. Huh. Under the care of doctors Robert Mullins and John H. Brennan, Gogan underwent psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Iggy. Mm-hmm. On February 25th, this has been like 20 years in the making now because right. now we're in 1981. Okay. Gogan returned to the pastoral work in St. Brendan's Parish in Dorchester. While there, he allegedly raped and fondled a boy. In 1982, the family of seven of Gogan's victims complained to Bishop Daly that Gogan had arranged to meet one of his victims at an ice cream shop in Jamaica Plain and was at the time in the company of another young boy. Can we stop? <clears throat> no. Because then September 1984, Cardinal Bernard Francis Law, the new Archbishop of Boston, removed him from the parish after complaints that he was still molesting children. Oh. <sighs> Gogan was then assigned to St. Julia's Parish in Weston on November 13th, 1984. He was put in charge of three youth groups, including the altar boys. That's not a good idea. No. That's a bad idea. This has been 20 years of allegations. Can we not fucking remove him? I, I, and definitely very, very least, the bare minimum, can we just not put him in charge? Of the children. Of the children. Like, you, sir, only get to talk to adults. That's that's it. it. You don't get to be around the children. Ideally, you, sir. Are in jail. That would be, that's but, like best case scenario. Mm-hmm. I'm going for like. Bare minimum. <laughs> the Catholic way. Oh, yes. If we're we not going to prosecute do... or remove him, keep him away from the kids. That's all I. That's all okay. I ask. All right. <sighs> um, on December 7th, Auxiliary Bishop John Michael D.R.C. wrote to law complaining about Gogan's assignment to St. Julia's because of his history of homosexual involvement with young boys. The same month, Mullins wrote that Gogan had fully recovered, and Brandon stated that there was no need for restrictions in work as a priest. Recovered? Mm-hmm. Because you can just fix it. It's like the flu. It's like he stopped smoking. Yeah. You just, like, get a shot, and then you're fine. You're like, oh, yeah. It, it, 
got some Nicorette gum. We're all good. <laughs> now you're done. Uh-huh. I know. I know, I know. In 1986, new allegations of sexual abuse were made against Gogan from April uh, 3rd through the 12th of 1989. He was treated at the St. Luke Institute in Silver Spring, Maryland, again, where he was diagnosed with homosexual pedophilia. On April 28th, 1989, Auxiliary Bishop Robert Joseph Banks ordered him to leave the ministry. Instead, Gogan was placed on sick leave. Mm -hmm. Sick leave. You know, like, you're just just (laughs) ill. Between August 10th and November 4th, he was treated at the Institute of Living in Hartford, Connecticut. Upon his release, Gogan was described as moderately improved. Oh, good. Excellent. Love that. Institute officials recommended that he return to assignment. Banks was concerned about the conclusions of the Institute's discharge summary. On December 13th, the Institute sent Banks a letter explaining the discharge summary, stating that the probability that he would act out again is quite low. However, we could not guarantee that it would not reoccur. I need guarantees. Mm-hmm. I, need, I need solid facts. That this will not happen again. That this is not going to happen again. You don't get that. So Kind of figure. Yeah. On November 28th, 1990, Banks recommended that Gogan return to the parish, but left the decision up to Cardinal Law and another bishop. And on October 23rd, 1991, the church received a complaint about Gogan, quote, proselytizing with a boy at a pool. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. What do you think that those uh, conversations between the bishop and the cardinal were like? Like, oh, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be fine. Uh, we know all of the allegations. I'm sure that there's not a shortage in at, priests. At this point, I feel like it is such an ingrained cultural thing within the church that I'm sure these conversations are like, why does he keep getting caught? Oh, that's true. That's very true. Mm-hmm. Oh, gross. Yeah. It's foul. So just hang in there. Uh-huh. Over a 30-year career in six parishes, Gogan was accused of sexual abuse involving more than 130 boys. That is... Awful. Uh, 130 too many. Mm-hmm. He was prosecuted. Yay! Insert applause. Finally. Finally, in Cambridge for charges of molestation that took place in 1991. He was defrocked in 1998 by Pope John Paul II. He was found guilty on February 21st, 2002 of an indecent assault and battery for grabbing the butt of a 10-year-old boy in a swimming pool at the Waltham Boys and Girls Club in 1991 and was sentenced to 9 or 10 years in prison. Oh. Not enough time. No. After initially agreeing to a $30 million settlement with 86 of his victims, the Boston Archdiocese pulled out of it and settled with them for only $10 million. Mm. Boston Suffolk County prosecuted Gogan in two other sexual abuse cases. One case was dropped without prejudice when the victim decided not to testify. In the second case, a judge dismissed conviction of him in two rapes after uh, hotly contested arguments because the statute of limitations had run out. Mm. The Commonwealth's appeal of the ruling was active at the time of Gogan's eventual death. Ah. So, in August of 2003, while in protective custody at the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center in Lancaster, Massachusetts, Gogan was trapped in his cell by Druce. <gasps> He jammed the door closed so correction officers could not reach him. Drews then strangled and stopped Jogan to death. Oh my God. Stomped him to death? Stomped him to death. Smashed his face with his foot to death. Woof. An autopsy revealed Gogan's cause of death to be ligature strangulation and blunt chest trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The state immediately began an investigation into procedures at the prison. There would have, there would have been questions raised about the wisdom and propri- propriety of placing these two men in the same unit. <laughs> since prison officials had been warned by another inmate that Drews had pl- something planned. And they were like, we don't, what, I don't see any problem. Do you see any problem? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was noted that two guards, uh, it was noted that while two guards are normally stationed in the unit where Gogan and Drews were being held, there was only one officer in the unit at the time, as one had left temporarily to escort another inmate to a medical station. Oh. Union officials had noted there were staffing cuts previously at the prison, which they feel led to the prison being a more dangerous and volatile place. It has also been suggested that Drews had been offered money to kill 
Oh my god. To kill our priest. Uh-huh. Or Drews thought he would gain prestige from fellow prisoners for doing so. Or that he just hated gay men. Or he just hated gay men, and he, the reason he is in prison was because a man tried to molest him. Yep. So the idea that a child predator was now in his unit, uh-huh. I can see how... That would get the One wheels. One thing would lead to another. The wheels are turning. Yeah. And it's like, I'm will. already in here. Is, well, and that guy fucking sucks. Yeah. So, a Worcester, 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 Massachusetts jury <laughs> found Drews guilty of first degree murder on January 25th, 2006, after rejecting his insanity defense. During the trial, Drews was seen with the black eye he received from an individual who surprised him in his cell. The man who had surprised Drews was reported to have been wearing correction officer pants, suggesting a reprisal by prison staff for the embarrassment surrounding his murder. Huh. Drews is given another mandatory sentence of life in prison without parole. He was already in there. He, was, he doesn't care. Yeah, he was like, cool. Yeah. At least this guy who only is serving nine years is never going to get out. Uh, right. In June 2007, the Boston Herald received a handwritten letter signed Joseph Lee Drews. Stating the truth about officer involvement in John Gogan's death, along with an address for a YouTube video. <laughs> the address contained a video taken by security cameras around the Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center made during the murder. The 10 minute video shows the attempts made by correctional officers to open the cell door, as many as five pulling at one time. Eventually, the doors open, officers extract Drews, and medical personnel enter the cell. However, inmates at Sousa Baranowski do not have internet access. Department of Correction officials were investigating who posted the video as it is from an internal security camera. Hmm. At the time Drews killed Gogan, he was already serving life without possibility of parole for killing a man who allegedly made a pass at him after picking Drews up after hitchhiking. And in the interim between these, these little stories, just as a side note, Drews had become infamous for sending fake anthrax letters to Jesus lawyers Christ. with Jewish names from prison. Wow. Mm-hmm. So uh, a, three, a three for one. A wild ride. It, it was a lot. It's a little shorty. It's like a little shrimpy, but... That it, was juicy. I, I, I'm here to give you bang for your buck. Wow, that was good. Thank you. I mean, I can understand, like, why I, I, one thing would kind of lead to... Uh, I don't condone murder. I'm not saying that this was the best path. Right. It was a path. That is for sure. It is the path of what actually happened. Uh-huh. So it was a true path. I'm just here to tell you the true path of crime. <laughs> true crime paths. True crime paths <laughs> with Jenny and Taylor. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. Is that wild? That was wild. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm here to please. Do you have a bright and shiny? Um, my bright and shiny is, uh, yeah. So last Saturday, uh-huh. I, listen, my therapist told me to chill out. So I have been trying. I've been yeah. doing really bad at it. Okay. But Saturday for the first time in years, I deep cleaned my house. Uh-huh. And by like 2 PM, I was satisfied with how my house looked. I know. I haven't ever had that okay i mostly just clean until i'm exhausted and i can't clean anymore yeah but i actually sat down and i looked around and i'm like it (gasps) looks okay Uh uh-huh so that good job that was a big win for me i think the last time my anxiety like straight up anxiety panicked was at the beginning of quarantine Mm. and i cleaned every nook and cranny of my kitchen with a butter knife and Uh a toothbrush yep and it felt amazing yeah when it was done mm-hmm. but i was also like that was a lot got a little out of hand got a little out of hand mm-hmm. there with a little the, unhinged with the controlling things yes with <laughs> the control with the controlling things with the controlling things yeah. but it was okay it was a big i'm Good. marking it as a win a win a win a win that's so, exciting what is yours um i am very excited that After many months of not having any good television to watch or not really being interested in television, which is very unusual for me. You always have something up your sleeve. I'm always watching something and I just haven't found anything that I was interested in or involved in or I would watch like four, five, six episodes and be over it and just like put it down, never pick it back up. Mm -hmm. And I have been binging The Vampire Diaries. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it is exactly the distraction that I need. It is dramatic and juicy and supernatural and it's very on brand for you. It's it's fantastic. I'm very happy about my okay. life choices. Did you so. watch Bridgerton? No. I liked it. I really I, did. I enjoyed my time. Allie has also told me I need to watch Bridgerton, and I will. But I'm just so invested into the story of the Vampire Diaries right now. You can't that get I out. Just, no, and I just have to ride it out because it's been so long since I've had something that I've really found and, myself, like, enjoying and, like, watching, like, while I'm getting ready in the morning or, like, while I'm cooking dinner. Yeah. That... I don't want to, like, break from it for fear yeah. that it will like, go away. Because <laughs> it brings me so much joy to just sit down and, like, watch TV. If it works, it works. So, yeah, that's my bright and shiny is the Vampire Diaries. I love that for us. <laughs> it um, is what it is. Well, thank you so much for listening yes. to this episode. It, yeah, so go follow us on social media. Yeah, We're yeah. on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. If you have a true crime story or ooky spooky, feel free to email us at a little bit gram at gmail.com. We'll put it in our next uh, listener episode or our, our next grab bag. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day they will all turn into listener Maybe. episodes. Maybe. Yeah. But for now, they're grab bags. Yeah. So send us your stuff. Yeah. We'd love to hear it. And then if you wanted to be so kind and generous and review us, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. It would really help us out. Yeah. And be kind to yourself and to others. Goodbye. Goodbye.